Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome, welcome. Uh, this is uh, another in a series of shows that we've done about how the language is changing. Uh, and we have terrific guests here today. We're going to be exploring not only the rules of grammar, but the rules of style as well. We're going to be talking uh, about not only the way the average person uses words, but also the way authors use words, which is often quite different. Um, and oddly enough, the more famous and, and hallowed an author you are, the probably the greater chances that you're breaking some fundamental grammar rules. Anyway, that's not for me to say. It's for the, for the guests to say. So uh, Benjamin Dreyer is joining us uh, from the NPR studios in New York. He is the author of Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style, Vice President, Executive Managing Editor, Copy Chief at Random House. Uh, also joining us uh, in studio, a frequent guest of ours, Peter Sokolowski, Editor-at-Large at Merriam-Webster, and also joining us, Mignon Fogarty, also known as the Grammar Girl, founder of Quick and Dirty Tips Network, celebrating 300 million uh, downloads and creator of Grammar Girl website and podcast. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing, and six other books on writing. So as you see, we've got the, we brought the big guns this time. So Benjamin, I'm going to start with you. Dreyer's English is uh, new and exciting. And uh, who is this book for? Who, who did you write this book for? Well, when I started thinking about writing the book, my initial thought, and as I was having the conversation with my editor, was that he said, well, you know, the audience for copy editors is this much, and so now we've got two hands very close to each other, and the audience for writers is this much, and the hands move a little bit further apart. And then he added, the audience for everybody who wants to know what yet one more person thinks about the Oxford comma, and then he held his hands as wide as he possibly could, and he said, that's our audience. So I really did want to make a book that would be appealing to people who do words for a living, either in a, a copy editorial sense or, or, or as writers. But I also did really simply want to write something that would amuse people who do find themselves engaged in writing. Because, I mean, we all write. We're all writing uh, emails all the time. And we, we would like to express ourselves clearly. And theoretically, it's for everybody. And we're going to find out, I guess, as things go on, whether or not everybody is interested. Mignon Fogarty, you know, I, I actually, I said, who is this book for? Should I have said, for whom is this book? <laughs> uh, well, I guess if you're following exact proper grammar, you should, but you would also sound pedantic and stuffy. There are times when, you know, you use whom, I enforce whom if I'm editing a formal document, but in speech, you know, you don't want to walk into a sports bar and use whom. So it sort of depends on how you think of this show. It's probably somewhere between um, a formal document and a sports bar. So you know, it's really up to you. And so, Peter, the, the, the thing that Benjamin's bringing up is a really interesting question, which is, first of all, he assumes, incorrectly or otherwise, that everybody who's trying to write is trying to write well, uh, even including people sending emails and stuff like that. And on the other hand, Mignon is just saying, well, of course, 
you would speak a little bit differently in a sports bar and perhaps a little less perfectly in a sports bar than you would in somewhat more formal settings. So how do we how do we navigate all those kinds of, of different different terrains? Yeah, it, you were talking about appropriateness. Appropriateness of language is such a is such an important thing, and that's really what a copy editor does is recognize you know when. Uh, when to enforce a rule and maybe when to bend it, when maybe when to break it. I mean, Benjamin has in his book, he mentions one of the great style guides as having a kind of definitive bossiness. And what's really refreshing and modern uh, and uh, interesting about this book is its flexibility, because that's really what's happening is that we want to sound like real people, too. Right. And, you know, Benjamin, one of the things that I think about in connection with this is, and as somebody who has at times written for a living and not done radio, is when you write, one of the questions I ask myself is, how would this work as a song lyric? Because Mm -hmm. song lyrics, sometimes they sound the way that they sound because they have to rhyme and stuff like that. But song lyrics also have to sound like the way people actually talk. So in 8675309, it's Jenny, Jenny, who can I turn to, right? Not to whom can I turn. Uh, Actually, we could go back even to Anthony Newley is pretty much asking the same question. Who can I turn to when nobody needs me? I mean, the way that we speak, what's felicitous when we speak might be very, very different from structural, prescriptive stuff about writing. I guess that should be a question, but I didn't really ask you one. So just react to it, Benjamin. Um, I think that as a copy editor, when I find myself dealing with a manuscript, it's very important to... To, to be the copy editor for that manuscript and not some uh, platonic ideal of manuscript that possibly I'm carrying around in my head, although there's no such thing. My job as the copy editor is to serve the writer's intentions and to listen to the writer's voice. I mean, copy editing at least half listening. Uh, you, you certainly should uh, pay attention to what's going on, on the page before you start taking a, a pencil or an axe to it. And you have to you you have to listen to 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 the author's voice, to the author's tone, uh, to tune up the grammar as is appropriate, but also to sort of step back a bit and let the author do what the author's trying to do. So, Mignon and Fogarty, I, I think feel as though there are, obviously there are two main camps: prescriptivists who feel that there are rules, you should know the rules, you should follow the rules, uh, you should break the rules at your peril, and descriptivists who say, well, this is how the language is being used right now, therefore that is increasingly becoming the rule. And I'm just wondering how you feel things are going these days. For example, there are some descriptivists who would say, you know what, who and whom. That's pretty much over right now. It's just like nobody really gives a crap about who versus whom. I mean, how, how do we even decide which things are permanently changed or, from my point of view, broken? Oh, well, you know, going back to song lyrics, I, I think of song lyrics more like poetry than writing, and poets break all kinds of rules. Right. So nobody should be looking to song lyrics for examples of proper grammar. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the descriptive is prescriptivist fight. It's ongoing. It's been ongoing for hundreds of years, and it will continue to go on for hundreds of years into the future. And, you know, I, I hate to sound like a broken record going back to songs, but it, it does all come down to appropriateness. If you're writing, uh, well, sometimes I call it cover letter grammar. If you're applying for a job, then you should be precise with your language and you know, the person who's hiring is looking for a reason to throw out applications and looking for grammar errors or perceived grammar errors can be a really easy reason to take someone out of that pile. 
So you should be as accurate as possible when you're writing a cover letter or a resume. You know, if you're writing a tweet or a Facebook post or a text message to a friend, it, it's an entirely different scenario where you can be much more casual and playful with your language. But it seems to me, Peter, that with a whole bunch of shifting standards and four different style books plus, you know, 20 different people's just general vague ideas of what a style book is, it's hard even to know what that would amount to, what her advice would amount to. I mean, let's, you could probably have your own example. I, I, well, yeah, yeah, give well that's example. why Benjamin wrote the book, clearly, you know, to, to, because people are looking for uh, that kind of guidance. And that's why I think, in, in a sense, the descriptive, prescriptive thing is a bit of a straw man argument for the following reason. A dictionary, for example, like the Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary, is written uh, uh, based on evidence, based on citational evidence, is based on real-life use of language. And so we call that descriptive. That's our descriptive mission. At the same time, the purpose of a dictionary is clearly prescriptive. You look it up because it calls balls and strikes on spelling and on pronunciation and on meaning. And so I think it's important to recognize that sort of description is the, the means by which we uh, you know come to this knowledge, and then prescription is the application of that knowledge. In the case of who and whom, I think it's a fascinating subject, and some people do argue that whom is going away. Way. I don't I don't agree. Um, but there's another piece of this, too, that I think that the, the sort of factual piece, the linguistic piece that we can all speak to uh, more. But th- in this one case, for example, a native speaker of English really, really, really wants to hear the first noun of a sentence as the subject of that sentence. And so when whom is it, when the object is the first uh, you know part of a sentence, our ears naturally want the verb to agree, even though it's the object. So who in the first position, as opposed to when we say after a preposition, like to whom or for whom at the end of a sentence, um, we have a prejudice kind of. The, we, we almost have a, a reflex not to use whom in that in that position. And that's something that we've learned through a lot of data analysis of, of corpus uh, linguistics to recognize that English speakers have their own, you know, find their own way. Right. So I, I, I guess, you know, can, can, yeah. I, can yes. I jump in and add Please something do. too? Because the, the, the prescriptive part also, that's why we have style guides. So I'm often telling people about what the Chicago Manual of Style recommends or what the AP Style Book recommends. And so sometimes, and sometimes they're different. I know in um, Benjamin's book, he has a fabulous line, something about um, only savages don't use the serial comma. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, and if you're following Chicago Manual of Style, that's true. But uh, if you're following the AP Style Book, then you actually shouldn't use the serial comma in a lot of situations. So, you know, we do have these books that tell us what the rules should be if you're writing, you know, for a publication that follows one of these style books. Right, but that's, so a, that's a big if. We should be, make it clear because I'm not sure everybody gets this. So, I mean, uh, newspapers and wire services and stuff like that, they uh, have their own style books and, and the, the style books dictate how copy editors – uh, not unlike Benjamin, would would react to certain things if those things were going to go into that particular publication. I used to work for a newspaper where the um, past tense of kidnap had only one P in it, kidnapped, <laughs> you know? And, and I mean, the readers might not like it, but kidnapped was basically what we did because the style book said that. I mean, I wonder about that, Benjamin, too. I mean, if, if our, we both have to be reading the same style book if we're going to decide whether or not I'm a barbarian. Right, well, and, and, and I think that you're probably Probably not, but be that as it may. <laughs> when I started at Random House 25 years ago, the first thing that I was told in the first memo I was handed was Random House has no house style, which 
to a great extent was true. The parts of it that were not true, basically, we did have a house style, and the house style was you use the series comma. You use it without asking. You use it without you know questioning yourself. You just slap that baby onto the page. Otherwise, it was really what the manuscript needed at any particular moment, what each manuscript needed at any particular moment. But we did have uh, one other thing, which was that we the House Dictionary was, uh, is uh, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, but now it's the 11th, then mm-hmm. it was the 9th. And the House rule was use the first spelling of any given word if more than one spelling was given. And that was simply, I think, in those days, because we were all working on paper and we didn't have files that we could search to see whether an author was using one version more than another version, it made it simpler to always know whichever one is the first spelling is the one that I'm using, and I will apply that from the beginning of the book to the end. I'm hoping that we didn't use the one P kidnapped because it's, 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 it's just unsightly. It is. It's, it's barbarous. All right. So, so let's just let's, let's pick an example. This is being an example of, and I think, Benjamin, you have, this is in your book, and is an example of something where maybe the rule might be softening, and that would be the use of the pronoun, pronoun that when the opposite word is a human being. I'll give you an example. So the Pope listed all people that would rise from the dead. To me, Mignon, that clangs against the ear that it really should be the Pope listed all people who would rise from the dead. But I feel, and I think Benjamin may be suggesting too, that this might be one of those things that's getting a little flabby. Yeah, when I started more than 12 years ago, that was actually one of my pet peeves. (laughs) But when I looked into it, I found there wasn't anything to support the, the differentiation. You know, some people don't like it. But there's no rule against using that to refer to people. And there are some instances where it makes more sense, like when you're talking about people as a collective group. I mean, if you're saying um, girls that wear scrunchies um, often show up at the gym, mm-hmm. that, that's describing sort of a class of girls. And in that situation, that is acceptable. Um, and, and really, it's acceptable, I think, you know, in most situations. But, you know, that's another thing. If I were editing, often I might suggest that the writer change it to who, but it's not the hard and fast rule that most people think it is. Right. And so another another one of them, Peter, and then we'll have Benjamin react to all, all of this kind of stuff. But another one of them, Peter, would be the Pope. By the way, I'm stealing these. I'm, I'm stealing the framework for these examples. Roy Blunt Jr. years ago wrote a review of all of the newspaper, major newspaper style books. I believe it's called Is the Pope Capitalized? Uh, <laughs> and um, so I'm sort of stealing this idea a little bit from him. All right. So, uh, Peter, the Pope listed people such as Kid Rock and Roger Goodell, who would not rise from the dead. Now, I think Benjamin feels as though, and I think I do too, that we can say the Pope listed people like Kid Rock and Roger Goodell, who would not rise from the dead. Sure, that use of like and that use of that uh, are both entirely standard. And so what we're sometimes confronted with are what we call zombie rules, you know, the rules that were handed down generation after generation by teachers who didn't have access to what we have access to now, which is to say uh, huge bodies of historical linguistics and, and co- contemporary uh, corpora, that is to say, we can we can do a quick search to say how many times per million words of English is this word used, which is the greatest tool any lexicographer could ever have. And that helps us all have more confidence with the way we uh, make our calls. And of course, uh, the one thing that I think, you know, Benjamin gets back to over and over again, and that connects to the that uh, issue, is your ear. 
is ultimately uh, uh, you have to have a good ear to be a good writer and to be a good editor. Right. And, and although, Benjamin, just trusting one's own ear seems like uh, um, a vehicle for chaos. <laughs> It, it can be, and that's why there are copy editors. Um, <laughs> it's it's always good to have um, an extra set of eyes and an extra pair of ears regarding that that which you are trying to do. I mean, going to the uh, notion of introducing a list with either such as or like, I came very late to finally wrapping my head around the idea that it was okay to use like um, because I had sort of had it pounded into my head that if you're saying, well, great 20th century novelists like Edith, Edith Wharton, you mean great 20th century novelists of a list that doesn't in fact include Edith Wharton, just people who are like Edith Wharton. Yeah. And when you finally confront that, um, it sounds terribly silly. So I finally was able to drop my my, my desperate holding on to, to such as and to, to embrace like. Right. So how about novelists like but not restricted to Edith Wharton? <laughs> yes. Um, so, so okay, Mignon, I want to uh, deal with one that is a rule that sort of nobody follows orally but still kind of exists and has a kind of politics to it. And I think that's the pronoun they. So I, I now realize that you don't think much of song lyrics. But, you know, Harry Nilsson saying, everybody's talking at me, but I, can't, I don't believe a word he or she is saying. No, that doesn't really work. So everybody's talking at me. I don't believe a word they're saying. And that, that whole business of trying to deal with the fact that many sentences are introduced by essentially a vague singular construction, like every person, everybody, whatever, and, but which then has to be followed supposedly by he or she or he or she or something. Uh, I, I don't know. What's the status of that one right now? Right. Well, I'm... I'm the singular they has been used in English for hundreds of years. There's a long, long history of it. And I'm, I've am i been very glad to see the style guides giving their uh, blessing to using the singular they in you know, more formal writing. It, it, it's what people say. I, I firmly believe that even people who argue against the singular they use it in speech and don't realize they're doing it. It's, it's a very natural thing to say, uh, you know, everybody should thank their teacher. You know, that sounds just, it just comes out of your mouth. It just sounds natural and normal. And, and it's what most people would say. Most people would not say everyone should thank his or her teacher. And Peter, this um, is another zombie rule anyway, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Mignon said it exactly correctly. The, the, the singular they has been in use as long as English has been spoken. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I also wonder... Uh, Benjamin, whether when people break rules, when people attempt things that almost amount to innovations, whether what's in their heart is important. And this is one that I thought of today. So there's there's a new, I don't know how new it is. Peter Peter will now tell me it's 300 years old. But there's something that I see people doing these days, sometimes playfully, sometimes not, and that is to take a noun and verb it. So on in uh, The Martian, uh, Matthew Damon says, you know, I'm going to science the crap out of this situation. <laughs> All right. So and to me, that's done so obviously playfully that it, it invites us to sort of join in the pleasure of it. Now, I just uh, today in, in seeing a government memo saw the word on board used, used as a verb. Mm-hmm. So we're going to onboard some new companies here. And to me, that's pernicious 
because it's not being used playfully. But does it does it matter, Benjamin? What's in your heart when you do these things? Uh, I mean, I think and and. Peter particularly knows the history of verbing uh, and verbifying probably better than I do. But I, I do know, I mean, we, we do it and we've always done it. If, if I am not mistaken, if we're talking about hosting a party, it's because we've verbed the noun host. If you want to use the word gift as a verb, and some people don't want to use the word uh, gift as a verb, so that's another verb noun. But we, you do it all. I mean, we do it all the time, and we're going to keep doing it. And I always keep my eyes open for um, not only verb nouns, but anything that gets sort of pulled out of a fresh idea. Because if it's funny, if it does something perhaps that no extant word does quite so well then what response should anybody have except, oh, this is good. Come on in. You know, re-gift is the one that, that comes mm-hmm. into my mind because it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else that quite conveys the notion <laughs> of re-gifting. So, um, yeah, sit down at the table. Have a good time. All right. I'm going to let you all do your crotchets and peeves in just a second here. But I want to ask Mignon about another one. This is one. So this is a peeve of one of my college friends who I think at a certain point, a lot of us, when something's changing, I mean, something like beg the question, which is used the wrong way all the time. Sometimes we're just like those camels in Lawrence of Arabia where you just you just lie down in the sand and die at a certain point. You just say you've got nothing left. You can't take another step to fight this thing. And so my college classmate who was working for a big financial firm had discovered that, you know, the word around is now constantly used to refer to or to substitute for, I guess, maybe pertaining to, right? So we're having a lot of conversations around the issue of, you know, courtesy in the bathroom. And that's one guy's peeve, but I feel like he might as well lie down in the dust with the other camels on that one. <laughs> right. I've given up the battle on uh, begs the question. It's, I, when I was writing one of my books, I, I looked for instances of it being used properly. I did a, a news search and, and I went through, I think, 500 examples before I found one where it was being used properly. And I thought that battle, that one's lost. Right. We should we should say that the, the beg the question pro- properly, or at least as a philosophical fallacy, would have been uh, why is Peter Sokolowski the best lexicographer in America because he's so good. Um, right. Well, I've effectively begged the question. I haven't really answered that question. Uh, I simply restated uh, a premise of the question. All right. So you all get to do peeves and crotchets. I know, Peter. I'm going to go first to you because you are a descriptivist. So you're almost not allowed to have peeves. <laughs> no, we we of course we are. Of course we are. And you know we all have them, and they're all valid. I mean. Uh, what I like to think about this subject is that, you know, most speakers of English accept the fact that the language changes over time. Uh, we recognize that, for example, a page of Shakespeare shows difference between his use of language and ours. But we don't accept the changes made in our own time. You know, language changes just fast enough that we notice and we hate the changes that we notice. Uh, an example uh, of, of, of a verbed noun, for example, that people noticed uh, when Downton Abbey was shown, uh, they used the word contact. I don't know how to contact her mm. was the sentence. And people pointed out that verb did not exist in 1914. And you realize, well, today we probably don't go through a day without using it. And so uh, as the linguist David Crystal says, uh, uh, frequency makes the heart 
content. You know, uh, you, you basically, if you hear the term very, very often, a word like access, which was never a verb until computer uh, connectivity was important, um, like the verb impact, which is maybe a, a, a peeve of mine in the sense that I don't use it. <laughs> um, uh, and that, all that does is show my age because access I do use. I think both of them came uh, in, uh, into sort of verbhood at about the same time, except that access I probably hear five or ten times a day and impact I hear five or ten times a week. That's the difference. All right, Benjamin, you get to have peeves, uh, and you've got a whole chapter about peeves and crotchets, I think you call them. <laughs> yes, or, or perhaps crochets. I'm not yes, sure. or crochets, <laughs> or croquettes. Um, I, I think people expect me sometimes to have very fancy peeves and crotchets because because I ought and, and I should be engaging in a lengthy conversation as to whether it's proper or improper to refer to the hoi polloi because uh, the, hoi part of, the hoi part of hoi polloi means the – uh, when probably we should be simply discussing whether we're using the term hoi polloi at all because it's 2019. But, I mean, there are a lot of weird things that, that get on my nerves, um, but they're not necessarily grammar things. They're just either misidentifications or redundancies. Um, this perhaps reflects badly on my character that I think <laughs> about this too much, but um, don't ever refer to a martini in front of me as a gin martini. Ah. Martinis are made with gin. If you want to make some version of a martini that's made with vodka or something else, then then you attach a couple of extra syllables to it. <laughs> but a martini is a martini. And uh, after uh, I finished reading the book, my sister was reading it, and she said, you forgot to talk about how much it irritates you when people refer to cast albums as soundtracks. Mm. Mm. And I thought, yes, I did forget to do that. <laughs> Well, right. Problem corrected. At least yes. here for the the good listeners of Connecticut and and parts beyond. All right. So, uh, Mignon, you're certainly uh, you're entitled to your uh, peeves and crotchets. So let's hear it. <laughs> sure. I, I try to be open minded, but the one thing that makes me cringe when I see it is when people capitalize words just because they think they're important. <laughs> um, huh. You know, in in German, nouns are capitalized, but in English, you know, they aren't. So you see it a lot in business writings. Um, someone will capitalize the word, word salespeople because they want their salespeople to know that they are important within the organization. So they'll say, our salespeople won an award this year, and they'll capitalize salespeople. And that's just not how English works. We don't capitalize words just because they're important, or we want people to feel important. So that always makes me, that's just my little Pet peeve that well, Peter, I feel like if I was reading some 17th century broadside uh, or 18th century broadside, I would seek all right. kinds of things almost arbitrarily capitalized. Absolutely, uh, that that nearly Germ German habit of capitalizing nouns was was very prevalent in the 18th century. You read the the, the works of the founding fathers, yeah, you see Th Thomas Paine. I yeah, think you like, see you yeah. see capital letters everywhere. So it was more or less standard English at one time, and that's an important point too: is that these standards change. All right. With that, we are going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to shift over to the subject of written style, writerly style, what writers do with all these rules. Night and day, come on. You are the one dash. Only you come up beneath the moon, come and under the sun, semicolon. Whether near to me or far, dot, 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 it's no matter, comma, darling, comma, where you are, dash, I think, comma. Night and day, period, new paragraph. 
So we have these wonderful uh, uh, experts on words, grammar, usage, writing uh, here with us today. Benjamin Dreyer, uh, Vice President, Executive Managing Editor, Copy Chief at Random House, and author of Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. Peter Sokolowski has been with us lots of times, editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, and Mignon Fogarty, the Grammar Girl, founder of Quick and Dirty Tips Network uh, and creator of Grammar Girl website and podcast. She's the author of the, the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty uh, Tips for Better Writing and Other Books on Writing. So I feel as though in many respects I learned writing style and and what might amount to really interesting and good writing by watching people break rules. And oddly enough, one of my early influences was the comic strip Pogo. It was written by Walter Kelly, who, Walt Kelly, who was just a genius in style. And of course, all of those animals uh, spoke in the southern dialect that didn't really exist. Walt Kelly was from Bridgeport, <laughs> Connecticut. But I remember, for example, at one point, the, uh, Albert the Alligator was talking about the contributions made to the environment by uh, Churchy Lefemme, the turtle. And he said, he said, Occasionally, pursuant to his trade as a turtle, he stick his head under beneath the water and breathe pure H2O. And I thought in that sentence, pursuant is a nice <laughs> choice of words, you know. And, of course, under beneath is not a word at all. And it's all there in this kind of one wonderful sentence. And, and Benjamin Dreyer, in a way, as somebody copy editing fiction writers, you have to struggle a little bit with that, too, that the beauty may exist in the violation. Uh, a few years ago, we did a short story. We published a short story by George Saunders called Fox 8. And it is narrated by a fox who's taught himself English by overhearing English as it's spoken in people's houses when he's outside listening at the window. <laughs> and so it's all written in, in a fox version of English. And A, it's just brilliant because, um, mm. I mean, just about everything. Well, not, not just about everything. Everything I've ever read of mm. George Saunders is, is brilliant. But the question that, I, that, that became interesting was, can this be copy edited? Mm -hmm. And as it happened, it could be copy edited because the copy editor who was assigned to work on it was able to look at it simply for inconsistencies that might be better made consistent checking to see whether George was doing something on purpose or not, making sure that something that was written in Fox wasn't so obscure that nobody was going to be able to figure it out. And it turned out that it very well could be copy edited. And he, he was absolutely enchanted. Anything can be copy edited. Everything should be copy edited. It's just a matter of meeting what you're copy editing on its own level. I would think that copy editing Pogo would have been super fun. Yeah, I don't think anybody even tried it though. But but it would have been super fun because in fact, yes, I mean the the because of that very inventiveness. So I mean, one of the things that we want to avoid. Well, Mignon, I know you've done some copy editing too, and one of the things that I, you know, Benjamin has a list. It's a little bit reminiscent to me of the list of uh, George, the George Orwell does also in Politics in the English Language uh, of just things nobody should say anymore. <laughs> and so uh, I, I'm doing this from memory, but I think you know he doesn't want uh, nostrils to flare anymore. <laughs> or lips or lips to purse. How come nostrils never purse? Is it possible to purse your nostrils? That's something I've been thinking about the rest of the day. But but Mignon, what about that? I mean, what about just the drive to get away from these things that Orwell described as inert, just so, you know, so dead that we don't even notice them? 
Right, cliches. I mean, it is. we give them because they convey something. They're familiar, and people do like to read familiar things. And it's easy to grab the familiar thing when you're writing. You know, fiction is so hard to write anyway. You know, people need to just get through the draft and get something down on paper. And, you know, the first and second and even the third draft maybe aren't perfect. And they've leaned on these cliches because they were there and they're familiar. And But I do think that Generally, you can make uh, work better by going through it and and coming up with a less hackneyed way to to say something. I mean, some of these things, Peter, are just fundamental violations of the word. Um, I think this is in <laughs> Benjamin's book. Like closed fist doesn't really make it. I've been pretty, right. I I've written the word, the phrase closed fist. But now that I think of it. Except yeah. if I may, can I can, yeah, can I leap in because that that's a, a a point for me right now. I may not be entirely correct as far as that's concerned when I said that you shouldn't refer to a fist as a closed fist because there is no such thing as an open fist. Yeah. <laughs> it has been pointed out to me that there is something, Peter. Maybe you have a better grasp of this, or Mignon. Um, it has to do with the positioning of the thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Peter. I have no idea, yeah. but there is always an exception. Right, you, know, you talk sure. about how you uh, shouldn't say someone is very dead because dead is absolute, and then somebody will say, "But what about zombies?" You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is that we're talking about um, where uh, your attention should be drawn, and a good copy editor will keep your attention on the line of thought and not on something that might distract you from that. And that's that's different from grammar. That's different from word choice. That is a bigger thing. That's the idea. That's the, that's the tone. That's the style. And that's really what a good copy editor is helping to form and also guarding. So uh, there are places where Benjamin is very strict, particularly as regards words like hissing, words that sort of describe, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to let Gollum hiss. That just seems like, Benjamin, you're being very tough here. <laughs> I, I think that if, if Gollum is hauling out the S's, and, and he often is because he tends to be very concerned about what's in somebody's pockets, mm-hmm. um, then he can hiss as much as, as he would like. <laughs> I, it's, it's, an, it's an old fashioned or just stuffy notion of mine that if you want to hiss something, it should have an S in it. Yeah. Um, and I know that there are many people who will happily smack me around and say, no, just any sort of harsh whisper constitutes a hiss, whether there's an S in it or not. To which I I only want to say, there are so many ways to characterize harsh whispering. Could you just please pick another word? Ooh, I don't, I'm trying to think of a word for harsh whispering. <laughs> it seems like the name of an Elvis Costello song somehow, <laughs> uh, harsh whispering. All right. So, yeah, I mean, we should talk a little bit about that, uh, about those kinds of word choices. And, Peter, you've read uh, Benjamin's book. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes through a, a lot of anything's sort of jump. I mean, for example, hissing, whining, stuff like that, things like that. He's He's picky about how we use them. Oh, sure. But, I mean, that's that's what we pay him for, right? We, we, we definitely want um, – and, and there's another element that we haven't even mentioned yet, which is taste. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to and we want to present our, our best selves on the page, and that's why copy editors are so important because we don't want to project something that was never intended and also shows either an ignorance or a mistake. And so we're being covered. We're being protected by the, the, the great angels of copy editors who help us all, including me, of course. Well, I mean, Mignon, it's also – I mean, it would be weird – 
to say, I don't know, I guess I like Charles Dickens, but he uses too many sentence fragments. Or, <laughs> I, or, or I, I really I would like Charles Dickens, but, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That kind of goes on and on and on, and it's one big run-on sentence. I hate run-on sentences. I mean, it seems like these things don't – taste doesn't necessarily have too much to do with style books when you get right down to it. But, but, but contradict no. me, please. I mean, none of these rules of style are are hard and fast rules. I mean, it reminds me, you know, a year or two ago, I reread uh, one of the Harry Potter books, and it jumped out at me that, you know, even though we're not supposed to use adverbs, we're not supposed to say someone said something loudly, you know, whispered softly, all those adverbs that describe how somebody said something, that turns up all the time in the Harry Potter books. And you know, obviously those were wildly popular. So, you know, the rules, when you start looking at them, are broken all the time in popular writing and good writing. Who is it? Uh, Captain Jack says there are, you know, more uh, recommendations or guidelines than rules. Uh, they're, they're recommendations, you know, but uh, people break them all the time. I thought Captain Jack will get you high tonight. I, I thought mm-hmm. we were going in a, like a very alarming direction here. Well, I'll, I'll say one thing about J.K. Rowling, which is she uses the word Pelt um, egregiously. <laughs> like you, things can go pelting down once in a while, but she's got things pelting down. But I mean, Benjamin, that's also a little bit of authors have favorite words, right? Authors have just things they like to do. Authors always have favorite words. I recall working with an author over a number of books in which I quickly learned he was very keen on the word murmur. <laughs> All his characters were always murmuring. And I would point it out, and he would, in responding to the copy edit, he would change them. But I remember that he confided to me after book three or so that he was aware that I was going to go in and query them, so he just kept writing them anyway. Because, <laughs> like, I'll fix it for him. But all writers do have the words that they like to use over and over. My copy editor pointed out to me that I had used the phrase garden variety six times over the course of my book. <laughs> and my book's only about 75,000 words long, and that's about five garden varieties too many. So we, we, we got rid of them. Not even a gardening book. You've got the book open, Peter. Yeah. You want to do something here. Well, uh, Benjamin has a great paragraph on artisanal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, ge- that brings to mind something that we should be aware of, which is f- just fads. You yeah. know, fads which are extra linguistic. This is a cultural phenomenon, but we have this label for it. We have a name for it. And, and like the word curate, which I think is also one of <laughs> Benjamin's peeves, it's a word that sort of has recently uh, t- uh, taken on a lot more weight than it formerly had. And it doesn't refer only to cheese anymore. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, or it that, does. Right, yeah. No, that could use, overusing it could get you into an artisanal pickle, really. If you, <laughs> exactly. If you do. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. All right. I think we should probably take a break here. I'm being told by my staff which words I use. I'll, I'll, I'll actually confess to this. So Jonathan McNichol, who's on the board right now, says that he's noticed that I use the word tincture a lot. <laughs> and that is absolutely the case. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, I was uh, I was in a little sort of a study club or something, and, and uh, one of the other people in it was the director of an art museum. And there was another art museum that had been having terrible ethics problems. So we asked this first person, well, what does your board of directors think about this? And he had this very elegant way and affected way of talking. He said, I think they regard it with an attitude not untinctured by schadenfreude. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, not untinctured by schadenfreude. How many people could even get away with saying that? So ever since then, tinctured is kind of stuck in my head. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. 
I should do credits and thank yous here. Usually Kion Wolf does them, but she's not uh, doing this particular show today. Jonathan McNichol is doing that job that she usually does, except for the part about saying the credits and the thank yous. Uh, so thank you to Jonathan McNichol on the board. Betsy Kaplan is the uh, person who created the show and produced this show. Seth, our new intern, he's in there doing something right now, right? Hey, there he is. He's waving, actually. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Seth for waving today. Uh, and uh, we should say that uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Graves. Uh, all right, so um, we're talking about usage, words, grammar, things like that with Benjamin Dreyer, Peter Sokolowski, and Mignon Fogarty. I've already told you a few times who they are. It takes too long to do it again. I guess we, you know, we, can't, we can't end this show without talking about the internet. And Benjamin, I think I'm going to start with you. Because of the internet, everybody's writing these days. Everybody writes all the time. And then everybody approaches this process of writing with different ideas. But, you know, Clay Shirky would say everybody's a publisher these days. Everybody publishes his or her writing. Oop, I did that thing. Uh, but um, <laughs> so what about that? I mean, what's happening? Is, is it elevating writing or dragging it down or both? At least based on what I witness and what I'm looking at and and the things that interest me, it strikes me that people are, are trying to write well. Every, everybody is trying to write well. And, and pe- there are wonderful writers out there, beautiful writers out there. I do sometimes read something quite good and I bemoan my in- inference that – there was no copy editor working on it. <laughs> that it's really good writing and there are three danglers over the course of 12 paragraphs and a couple of those commas should have been you know, put someplace else. And, and, and writers need to be assisted. All writers need to be assisted. And, and, and it, it, it peeves me somewhat when I can see really good writing that could be just a, a tiny little bit better uh, if, if somebody else had put their, put their hands on it. One thing that you know that that I think about. I'm not necessarily. This is the question that you're that you're asking. But uh, other online places, and I guess by other online places, I I must mean Twitter. Twitter has its own vocabulary, and if you're going to be there, you want to, I think, try to learn it and use it. And I find it endlessly amusing, which is good because I spend far too much time there. <laughs> so, yeah, Mignon, um, I think for some people writing on the internet, it's almost a point of pride, not only to use those kinds of very you know, built-in conventions and tropes that Benjamin is talking about, but also to kind of write badly, too. I mean, there, if you correct somebody... <laughs> on Twitter, it becomes clear that they know the rules in a way that you don't. Oh, I would never correct someone on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that we're seeing a lot more uh, writing that used to be private, and we're seeing a lot more writing that hasn't been copy edited than we maybe saw 15 years ago. Um, So that might lead some people to believe that that writing is getting worse, but I don't. I don't think it's actually getting worse. And I've actually heard. Oh, I used actually twice there. I guess that's the word that I overuse too much. <laughs> me too. Uh, but uh, I heard a, a teacher once told me that he thought the internet was great because his students, who were good writers, would take to the internet and and write and blog and you know post Tumblr posts and you know, experiment with writing in ways that weren't available to them before, that they could have an audience for their writing, and that encouraged them to do it more. And so he saw his best writers flourishing 
because they had access to the internet. So I think, you know, it's probably good and bad. It's not one thing or the other, but I don't think it's destroying the language like you sometimes hear people say. <laughs> well, Peter, you're a master of Twitter. It's, you've, <laughs> it's, you've joined them rather than fighting them. Absolutely. And, you know, there's two points here. One is that uh, I, I love this idea of a kind of pocket-sized rhetorical place, you know, where you can come up with a thought, a complete thought. It really has to stand on its own and stand by itself and make sense. Um, that's a good little discipline that I actually, I'm sure it's true for Mignon and Benjamin. I have found that things that I have sort of worked on as a tweet that I thought enough about to, you know, be careful uh, with have turned up in other writings of mine or in other talks that I give. And I realized that's because I really had to think it through and polish it just a little. And then and, and it gets it ready sort of for the prime time. But to step back a little bit further. I think there's something else here, which is that Twitter pulls the curtain back on professions that had been invisible, like copy editing, like dictionary writing. And so I think it's terrific that we have found each other in a sense. I mean, I'm thrilled to hear your voices, Benjamin and Mignon, um, and, and we're all friends, but I, I don't hear your voices that often. I see you on Twitter every day, though. And that kind of sense of community, I had no idea there was a constituency of copy editors and publishing professionals and writers that was so passionate. And they are, of course, people who use dictionaries. So uh, there was a natural connection that I had, but I didn't know they were there until Twitter existed. And I'm so grateful for that. Although Benjamin... Yeah, absolutely wonderful for finding your people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, ex it's extraordinary. I've met so many amazing people that I would not otherwise have had any intersection with, including, for that matter, authors in my own house, um, <laughs> yeah. that they would just be people passing by, and now they are truly, sincerely my friends. It's, it's spectacular. Uh, Benjamin, uh, I'll ask all of you this, but one of the things I think that is at peril uh, on the internet is spelling. People spell way, words in the ways that they would like to spell them or think that they should be spelled or, you know, an autocorrect can only do so much. Although it can be part of an interesting exchange. The other day someone was insulting me and I think they said that I was like a person of minuscule talent, but they, they misspelled it. So I wrote back him. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote back the word correctly. It's a word, obviously, that's frequently misspelled and kind of left it at that. But, but, uh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, Benjamin, the more that a word gets misspelled, I mean, there's a sort of – that's a little bit different than the prescriptivism and descriptivism debate. I mean, words have spellings. Words do have spellings. And I think – I mean, I pride myself on my spelling because I'm just very uptight about spelling and because I was so good at it when I was six. No, <laughs> words are spelled the way they're spelled and just let's let's leave it at that. As, as, I'm, as I'm fond of pointing out, you are not allowed to insult millennials if you can't even spell millennials. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So I guess maybe we can even end with this is something that we've we talked about recently on a different show, and and it does uh, go back to your peeves. Well, actually, rather than doing that, I'd like to just spend three or four minutes on something we haven't really talked about that much, and that is jargon. I mean, it does seem as though increasingly, well, it's always been a problem, right? Um, uh, FDR was given uh, a, a document about blackouts in 1942. It said such preparations shall be made as will completely obscure all federal buildings and non-federal buildings occupied by the the federal government during an air raid for any period of time from visibility by reason of internal or external illumination. And Roosevelt wrote back, tell them that in buildings where they have to keep the work going, put something across the window. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> Mignon, this really is a problem, right? And the more that office environments become highly specified, they develop their own impenetrable jargons that I think are a way of distancing everybody else from what they're doing. Uh, I don't know, as somebody who, who, who watches all this stuff, is this a particular concern? 
it's especially a problem with government. And I know that there's been a plain language movement to try to make government documents more accessible. You know, it's a balance because if you're in an organization that has a lot of jargon, you need to use it. If you're using everyday language to talk to your colleagues, you know, you're going to be being overly wordy. But um, then those people have to remember that they need to translate things for the general public. That's what I used to do. Actually, before I was grammar girl, I was a technical writer. And so I would take you know, these long, big, complicated stories and, and make them understandable to the average person. And, and that's, that's a special skill. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a talent. It's, I'm not saying I'm special or talented. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, <laughs> you it's something that, that it's, a, it's a skill that certain people have that, that they can do. And, and we need it because um, often people who are so smart and so engaged in their technical discipline can have a hard time um, conveying what's so wonderful and interesting about it to other people. Yeah, I don't know. Anybody want to say a last word yeah, or two about the, it? Go the ahead. bottom line is comprehensibility. I mean, it turns out that clarity is also elegant. And so that's why we need people from the humanities, people who are writers and editors like Mignon, like Benjamin, who uh, can, in a sense, translate that technical language to the rest of us. And that is really good use of language. Benjamin, you know, Orwell has that famous passage from Ecclesiastes, which he translates into bureaucraties. But it does <laughs> seem as though, you know, that the purpose of that kind of writing is to obscure meaning at times when, in fact, as Peter and Mignon are suggesting, meaning is especially important. I think we should all aspire to clear writing. And I don't always think that, I mean, I don't always think shorter is not necessarily clearer. Clearer is clearer. Um, I, I will find sometimes when I'm working on a memo trying to, to convey a, a new policy or, or simply how to do something, it's like I need more words than I thought I needed to make myself understood. And there's nothing wrong with using four or five more words if you're getting your point across uh, that much more eloquently. The only thing that I do object to indeed is writing that is so dense and impenetrable that you you simply don't know what it is that the writer is trying to say. I, I, I years and years ago, I remember being hired to copy edit a manuscript that literally I did not understand half of what the writer was trying to say, and it wasn't because it was technical; it was because it was just buried under itself. Well, I'm going to end the show with uh, my favorite example of careless memo writing. It's more of a misplaced modifier problem than jargon, but Bill Zinser used to have this memo that he would pull out in which whoever was writing it wanted a list of all employees broken down by sex. So um, (laughs) if you're broken down by sex, contact Benjamin Dreyer. His new book is called Dreyer's English, an Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style, or or Peter Sokolowski, editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, or Mignon Fogarty. She the Grammar Girl, and thanks very much to all of you and to Betsy Kaplan and the rest of the crew for doing this show. We'll be back tomorrow with, I think, maybe another radio show. Thanks for listening.